Hello and welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. Uh, my name is Kate and with me as always is Kathleen. Hello everybody. Welcome to episode M. It is not Robert Moses this time and it will be only one episode. Wouldn't it be funny if we did like a more in-depth in than we did last time? Right. <laughs> We've done two episodes on Robert Moses, but there's so much more to talk about. No, we're not subjecting you to more Robert Moses. Don't worry. We're talking about the Morris Jamel house, which is actually a recommendation from a long time ago, uh, which was from Jaquetta. Ah, uh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, hey, you know it. I think the first time we were on their podcast, I think she recommended this as an episode. And so finally, hey, here you go. Here you go. And everyone, hey, you know it is another Podbean podcast by our dear friends, Jaquetta and Katie. Everyone should listen. There's a link down there. If you haven't already, they just celebrated their uh, four-year, their birthday, their four-year anniversary of podcasting. So amazing. So amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let's get into the Morris Jumel house. So it was built as a summer villa back when those things happened, when you lived in Manhattan, which was only the lower part of Manhattan, and you would get in your carriage and go north to your summer home, which is in Washington Heights, which today is amazing. To the insane wilderness far, far away exactly. from New York City. So it was originally built in the Palladian style in 1765 by Roger Morris. And uh, we will have, we have so many pictures of this. Kathleen and I actually took a trip to the Morris Jumel house. So we will probably actually post some of our own pictures this time. But today it's not so much a Palladian architecture as it is uh, the federal style, which its second owners, the Jumels, renovated it. So it's not quite what it was when it was first built. But one uh, interesting architectural piece of the house is the two-story octagonal room in the back of the house worth walking around if you go in the house which i highly recommend pay the like five bucks or whatever mm -hmm. it is to get in five but i think that's five bucks i think yeah, so pay to get in but when you walk around the house you can see this really amazing octagonal room it's actually the first of its kind in the united states so that's a piece of architecture left over from the original construction. A lot of the facade and the portico in the front of the building were changed when the Jumels took over the house. Guys, wait till you hear about the Jumels. They are a trip. You're going to love them. They're kind of the best owners of the house as far as I'm oh, concerned. Oh, they're the star of the show. Yeah, yeah. You're just going to have to bear with us until we get to the Jumel part of the show because it is... Awesome sauce. Yeah, this, it, like Kate said, it was built in 1765. This is actually the oldest house in the borough of Manhattan. Now, I hate to get off topic, but it is not the oldest house in the city. The oldest house in the city is in Brooklyn. That is the Peter Clayson Wickoff House. That was built in 1652, more than 100 years before Morris Jumel. That is... Uh, inside Canarsie's uh, Milton Fiddler Park. Go see it, Old, New York City's oldest standing house. It is the first official landmark. Um, Peter Clayson was a tenant farmer. He later changed his name to Wyckoff. Wyckoff. And uh, Wyckoff, thank you. <laughs> he later changed his name to Wyckoff. Um, so it is not the oldest house in, the, in New York City, but it is the oldest house in Manhattan, which is a heck of an accomplishment. And like Kate says, we were there. You should definitely go there. I highly recommend it. It is uh, a little bit out of the way. You got to find it. 
totally worth it. I think it. both houses are. I've been to both houses now. I, both houses are. Oh, you have? I've never been to the White I House. I have. House. It's great. Okay. Uh, it, they're both worth a track. And maybe we'll put a link to. They both have amazing um, organizations that run them. So maybe we'll mm. put a link to both estates at the bottom of our page. And maybe we'll put it on Facebook too. Yes. Just so for those of you who don't do our Podbean site. Yes, the link is right down there. Yes. Um, and it's interesting, this particular site, just before we get into the architecture, because there's so much architecture to talk about, but so you know what your what the view is from the house. The mansion is located way up, I guess it's in Washington Heights, Hamilton Heights, right. maybe, a little bit south of Washington Heights, 160th Street, 162nd Street. When they built it, it was located on top of a ridge, and that ridge was called Coogan's Bluff. Now, they used to have views from pretty much everywhere. This is, those of you who know northern Manhattan, it gets very hilly. It's much higher. There are even some buildings that are basically up on cliffs. And that's the deal with the Morris Jumel House. From there, you could see lower Manhattan. You could see the Hudson River. You could see the Palisades in New Jersey. You could see the Bronx, Westchester, Long Island Sound, Harlem River. I mean, it was such a perfect location view-wise. Uh, and today, if you do want to go there, it's located in a, an area called Roger Morris Park. That's a city park. And it also has a boundary on the Jumel Terrace Historic District, which when Kate and I saw it, our jaws hit the floor. We could not believe it. Do you remember that? We're like, what, it, what is this What is this place? It's, in, it's so difficult to describe. Right, there's a street that leads up to the Morris Jumel house that you have to, mm-hmm. it looks like it's a private street, but it's not. Uh, you go through this gate and go up about maybe 10 steps onto the street that does not, you're suddenly not in New York. And at the end of this little street that's all cobblestone, it's it's maybe half a block long, there's just this park and beautiful huge house. And it just, it feels, I almost felt like I was in Washington, D.C. or even Colonial Williamsburg. I, like It almost felt to me like San Francisco, like those painted Victorian houses, but if those were townhouses. It's, uh, I... I know we're being vague and we apologize for that. It's almost impossible to describe, but you got to get your butt on the subway and get up to 162nd Street because it's really amazing to totally see. Totally worth it. I can't, I can't recommend it more. Even when it snows, I'm sure it'd be really beautiful. Just just go, mm-hmm, you'll just feel transported mm-hmm. out of the city. When you need that, like, I have to get out of the city, this is where you should go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is the most un-New York of New York places that we've talked definitely, about. Definitely, definitely. So to go a little bit more back into the architecture, just to do a quick, just to tell you how big this house is. Uh, the interiors are Georgian, and the house has lots of period furnishings. Some are original, some are not. Uh, lots of really careful reproductions. They really did a good job in restoring the house. It does need more work, and it does need a little help. So if you want to donate money to them, I'm sure... They'd be happy to take your money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the oldest house in the borough. It it, it looks it a little bit, but it, it has had a, a pretty extensive restoration, which we'll describe in a little yeah. while. Uh, currently, there are nine restored rooms, uh, one of which mm-hmm. was George Washington's office, which we'll go into more about him in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a restored dining room. Uh, Eliza Jumel, who was one of the last owners of the house, her bedchamber. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a bed that supposedly belonged to Napoleon. There are personal artifacts of Roger Morris, the original owner and builder, George Washington, Eliza Jumel, and Aaron Burr, 
are part of the museum's collection. Uh, there's a whole third... You're going to hear a couple of things about Aaron Burr in this episode. Yeah. There's a whole third floor that's not accessible to the public. Uh, but when if you talk to the people who work there, they're very happy to talk to you about the house. They know so much. The whole third mm-hmm. floor, I think, is more of a storage area. There's a lot of stuff up there, and there's a library up there yeah. that's not accessible to the public. But when you walk around, there are all these, like, you pretty much can go ev- almost everywhere in the house. It's very impressive. Yeah, you can go down to the basement. You can visit the yeah. grounds. I mean, they're, they, and they just, you know, you can come in, get a pamphlet if you want. But it's really, I'm sure there are guided tours. But when Kate and I went, we just took ourselves around and there's plenty of information around and it was really fascinating. Right. There's lots of weird doors that seem to go nowhere, but they go to a different wing of the house that's not open anymore. But we were so like, oh my God, there's a door that's not been opened in a really long time. Do you remember this, Kathleen? It's been like painted shut. It's on the staircase, like halfway up mm-hmm. to the second floor. And we asked, right? We asked, we asked, like, that. what's behind the door? And she's like, I have no idea, but I really want to open it. <laughs> yes, they want to open it for you. But maybe if you <laughs> donate some money, they can, uh, you know, work on restoring more of the house. They also throw events sure. there apparently. So if any of mm-hmm. our listeners are planning a wedding sometime soon, you can uh, have your wedding at the Morris Jamel House. And I believe there are programs there, too. I've read some comments. People online are like, oh, I was at the wine tasting there. I was at the photography exhibit there. So, you know, they it is a very active, involved museum in the community. Right. Well, let's uh, stop beating around the bush and get into a bit of the history. Mm-hmm. So the original owner, Roger Morris, was a British military officer. He was on the executive council of the province of New York. And he built the house for himself and his wife, who was American-born, Mary Philippe's Morris. And if that last name, Philippe's, sounds familiar, there's also a Philippe's Manor north of the city in Yonkers, which we'll probably get into in a little bit. Uh, It was another house uh, that the Morrises frequented. That's so interesting because, yeah, she was American-born, but of course, since this was all before the revolution, she was a British citizen. They they were both loyalists. They were loyal to the British British crown. Uh, they he built a house. They lived there for about ten years until the American Revolution hit, and at that time, that's when his wife and family uh, they they go to Yonkers. They go to the Philippe's uh, mansion, mm-hmm. which is like I thought the Morris Jumel mansion was huge, but when I saw pictures of the Philippe's manor, I was like. I need to take a trip here. <laughs> We're going to Yonkers. <laughs> I do. Too bad we don't do outside the city for history. That's but true. Uh, So he goes back to the UK in 1775 mm-hmm. and leaves his family here in Yonkers. I wonder if that was just a thing. Like all the British citizens and suddenly the revolution starts and they're like, get out. Go back to England or get all the way out of the city before this really takes off. He probably went back to work for the crown mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. UK, like to see what he could do in, what well, was in the UK at the time, but to see what he could do in England for, mm-hmm. um, to And she went back revolution. to her family and, and, and she, she exactly. took her kids and they went back to their own estate. Now, Mary Philippe's was a real character. She was described as uh, a great beauty. She had dark eyes. She had dark hair. She was very strong-willed, but she had a kindly disposition. Now, there are some reports, not quite 
not quite substantiated to my satisfaction, but there are some reports that she was George Washington's first love. Wow. Yes. Now, you have to imagine this back when she was a young beauty, uh, about 16 years old, and she first met George Washington, this young, handsome colonel from Virginia. He was 24. He had just won his first laurels on the field battle, uh, field of battle, so he was very courageous. He was on his way to Boston to meet uh, General Shirley, and he stopped at the house of Colonel Robinson in New York, and there he met a young woman named Miss Mary Philippe's. She was visiting her brother-in-law. I'm going to wait for the CW show. <laughs> oh my gosh, what are they waiting for? I know, I know. <laughs> He, he runs into her. She's visiting her brother-in-law, staying there for the winter. Uh, the report I read says, George's young heart was touched by her charm and beauty. He left reluctantly, continuing on to Boston. On his return, he was again the willing guest of Colonel Robinson, and he, retained there, he remained there in Mary's company as long as duty would allow. Wow. Speculation is that he offered her his hand, but was refused, though that is in doubt. Uh, and as we know, she went on to marry Roger Morris. So apparently they did cross paths, but she was a loyalist. I have a hard time uh, imagining a Romeo and Juliet situation working out very well for either of them. Yeah, I, I don't think it was it was never meant to be. Mm-hmm. You know, he meets Martha. Yeah, it works out. It does. It all works out. Well, uh, while her husband, Roger Morris, is in uh, Great Britain, we've said she is in Yonkers. He comes back two years later in 1775. They live in the house again, uh, but they have to leave. Like, you know, of course, uh, they lose the war. The United States of America comes into being. So 1783, the Morrises are gone from new york forever so this house is left behind mary was only was uh mary was one of only three women accused of treason during the revolution wow this is probably due to the prominence of her loyalist husband so he was a loyalist and he was one of the top guys and i suppose they were taking the wives as well of the very top ones so to be accused of treason during the revolution of course means you were loyal to the crown who lost the war and that like kate says is when they left and lived in england wow yeah mm -hmm. it's there's there's a lot of you know there's only so much you can know about what really went on in the house i feel like there's so many little secrets that we'll never find out that i'm i'm just kind of dying to know absolutely me too so while the morrises are gone in that two-year period from 1775 to 1777, some amazing things happen in the house. It's a very busy place. It's very busy. So from September 14th to October 20th, 1776, General George Washington uses it as a temporary headquarters after he and his army have to evacuate Brooklyn Heights mm -hmm. in the Battle of Long Island. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? You evacuate, you walk north, your men are tired and hungry, you're, you're very discouraged. And there's this gorgeous, empty mansion on the bluff. That sounds amazing. It also sounds a little bit like something from The Walking Dead. <laughs> I think it's just you make use of whatever resources are given to you by the universe. 
obviously our listeners now know what I watch on TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, GW, as I like to call him, uses the house's headquarters uh, for a while, uh, and especially during the Battle of Harlem Heights, which is the first Revolutionary War battle where a Continental Army forced the British to retreat. So a pretty, like, pivotal moment in the war. Mm-hmm, definitely. But George didn't stay there for very long. No, they're forced to flee north, and he has to leave, which, of course, there's this amazing, beautiful mansion. <laughs> And the British army, as well as Hessian mercenaries, take over the house. Basically, whoever won in that area gets the the house. house. I think that's how war works. I think so. I think so. Like Kate says, uh, after George Washington had to evacuate the house, it became the headquarters. uh, Two men were headquartered there, and it was British Lieutenant General Sir Henry Clinton and also the Hessian commander, Baron Wilhelm von Kniphausen. So the Hessians were fighting on the British side, and I wanted to go into a little bit of the story of Sir Henry Clinton, the British lieutenant, and uh, Wilhelm von Kniphausen, the Hessian commander. Unfortunately, there isn't too much about them. They didn't lead very interesting lives. What I can tell you is Sir Henry Clinton is not the guy after whom Castle Clinton is named. Uh, In 1871, that fort was renamed Castle Clinton in honor of DeWitt Clinton, who was mayor and later he was governor of New York. Sir Henry Clinton is also completely unrelated to both DeWitt Clinton and Bill Clinton. So just a name that crops up in history from time to time. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I was sure I'd have all kinds of interesting backstories to how the DeWitt Clintons and the Bill and Hillary are related to Sir Henry Clinton. No, no, they're not. And don't let anyone tell you there are. They're not. Yeah, it would just be a lie. It would just be a lie. Since the Morrises were loyalists, the house was confiscated at the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, there, there was something set up called the Commissioners of Forfeiture, and they sold land seized from loyalists through abolishments of their civil rights and confiscation of property. Mm-hmm. And that was it for the Morrises. That's it. That's yeah. that's the first half of the name of the house. Um, yeah. Thanks for building it. On your way now. Peace out. It was then turned into a farmhouse and a tavern on the Albany Post Road, which, according to lots of people, was incredibly an incredibly popular stop. And the Albany Post Road was a road, as it sounds, that connected New York to Albany, and it came, went up through where Manhattan was at the time by the Morris Jumel house and then cut over to what's now U.S. Route 9. If you've ever driven that on the east side of the Hudson, that was basically the road all the way up. And there is a portion further upstate uh, that still looks like the original Route 9 where it's like a non-paved dirt road. Right, right. So I'm kind of fascinated by it, but I've never been to But I've heard that Broadway, which starts way down in lower Manhattan in front of the the American Indian Museum, goes all the way up to Albany. Broadway, if you just drive it up, 
we'll take you to Albany. So stretches of that are the old Albany Post Road. Albany Post Road, Road yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the Post Road, of course, was created for mail delivery. But then, mm-hmm. of course, you know, everyone everyone uses it. Mm-hmm. And Morris Jumel, I mean, when you pass it, if you're on Broadway now and you're passing Morris Jumel, it's a couple of blocks away. There's some, you know, a lot of apartment buildings in the way. You can't quite see it. But back then, it was all there was around there. So, yeah, that's where you stop for the night. Right, and they owned many more acres. It was mm-hmm. parceled out eventually, but you can imagine that all of that was the Morris Jumel or the Absolutely. Morris Land. Their land the holdings Jumel. were huge, and you'll hear a lot about that with the Jumel fortune. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, as a side note, uh, Mary Philippe's home estate, the Philippe's Manor, uh, was similarly sold, was sold in the same way, where it was taken over. Her family was forced to leave. They all left for England, and the Philippe's Manor was similarly sold away it's a little sad but we did preserve those homes and their history exactly no and it's and it's it worked out in the end that that's what happened even though it's sad they had to leave their house so over the course of the morris jumel mansion's existence there have been lots and lots of famous people staying there which we'll get into more as we go and we'll point this out every time some some you'll be i i was like there's one connection that I was like, oh, I was like so floored by. Uh, but in 1790, uh, George Washington comes back when it's still a tavern. And he actually dines with his cabinet on July 10th, 1790. Some of the esteemed members of his party included Vice President John Adams, mm-hmm. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton, and Secretary of War Henry Knox. So some some more famous people who pass through. Isn't that amazing? And you walk through that room and it's just a room, but it is. Oh it is. my goodness, it's really amazing. Yeah, it we Kathleen and I actually found something uh, kind of a little disturbing, but I mean, mm-hmm. I I know at the time it happened, but today it's it, it was just disturbing, but when you go up to the room that was George Washington's room, especially when he stayed there during the Revolutionary War, there's like the main hallway that goes to what was his door. And then there's like a little side hallway that also goes into the room. And when we asked the people downstairs about it, um, uh, I never thought of George Washington as having slaves, but he did. And that side hallway is where uh, his slave that he traveled with would sleep on the floor. I was and it's, really it's interesting because of, of the of the information we were given and the way it's phrased it's like his companion his traveling no, no. boy Mm-mm. his you know there's a cup his groom manservant, there's, there's a yeah. manservant no. yeah there's a couple of different terms for it that kind of obscure that it was his slave his personal slave as opposed to whatever other slaves he might have had yeah it was a little i was uh, disturbed by that and i was like what he's sleeping on the floor Uh, and and but i also like that they don't obscure that at the house they don't try to hide that they don't try to they're very upfront about it yeah yeah and i thought when you were saying it was a little disturbing i thought what you were going to bring up was the dining room in the house oh no i I hadn't come come up to that yet which should i just not talk about it no go ahead go ahead it's very interesting because there are two uh, little side entrances where the servants would come in. And one is, you know, like the entrance from the hallway. And that's the one that you're sort of leaning over the little barrier and you're looking in the room. And it's it's a very beautiful, splendid room. And then there's a, another door off to the side. And that is where the servants would bring the food. And our helpful guide 
was the one who let us know that Morris Jumel was one of those homes that was designed with segregation in mind. Right, exactly. So that there were separate passageways, hallways, staircases for the servants to bring the food up and down from the kitchen without having to sully the hallways with the presence of the servants. And that was a revelation to me that, that <laughs> I don't know, it's a little naive, right? That segregation is so pervasive that it influenced the architecture of this house. I mean, I assume all of that stuff when I go back to Virginia and visit my family. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, of course, going to be there, sadly. I should but have assumed that. But I yeah, should have assumed it's it alarming. here, too. But, mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty shocking. By the way, please go down into the kitchen when yes, you go. Yes, um, definitely. It's very, go down very to the basement. Cool. It's really cool. Yeah. But, there's, yeah, there's definitely, once you start looking for it, there are all these, like, second entrances into rooms that people would have been waited on. Uh, there, there's a whole third floor that you can't go into, like we were saying, but that would have been the servants' quarters. And there's another staircase that we couldn't get to that was their way to get around the house. So that they wouldn't be in the main hallways. Yeah. So they wouldn't be seen. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very messed up. Uh, this brings us up to 1810, uh, which is when the mansion is brought by our favorite couple, the Jumels. Uh, and they are all kinds of fun. Yes, you're going to love these people. So you have Stephen Jumel, who is mm -hmm. a rich French merchant who uh, was based in Haiti and then during the uprisings was forced to leave. Leave, flee, run for your life because you're oppressive. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever mm -hmm. you want to say. And he was, as it turns out, the first person from... Uh, the records say the first Dominican to live in that area of New York City, which is funny because now that is sort of the center of the, the Dominican community in New York City. He's from Santa Domingo, which is one of the islands around what is now the Dominican Republic. It's a little fuzzy. But yes, like Kate says, he had to flee, and then he went straight to northern Manhattan, where so many of our Dominican friends decide to go. Exactly. Um, he moves there with his wife, was his former mistress um eliza yes. bowen jumel and their mm. adopted daughter mary bowen who may or may not have been her stepsister's illegitimate daughter yeah it's tricky the closest thing i could find to a record says it was her illegitimate niece so it's like her sister's daughter or her stepsister's daughter yeah yeah but they adopted it, this girl who they did. So now she's honestly think about that if you're an illegitimate child of someone you you might not have such a great future your your aunt comes along and adopts you. Okay, not so bad. Yeah, it worked, worked out good for Mary. Mm. The uh, Jumels immediately begin renovation of the home. Before I tell you about the renovation, I will tell you about the first ghost in the house. Oh, man. Wait till you hear about Mrs. Eliza Bowen Jumel. She's a nutcase. She ends she... up being one of our ghosts. Oh, man. She, what a woman. Yeah, I'm so like torn on her, but that's here's the thing. Here's the, and I'm torn as well. So there are a lot of stories about this woman, and you're going to hear all of them today. And some of them are of varying reliability, and some of them are like, "Wow, you're horrifying," and others are like, "Damn, you're amazing." So we're going to let you decide, and we're just going to give you what we've found. It's also one of those things where it's a woman in power. Mm -hmm. How much can you trust what? was spoken of her later yeah yeah 
it's it's take it all with a grain of salt, even the really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So the first ghost that we will bring up in the Morris Jumel house is a Hessian soldier who is said to appear on the winding staircase, which when you come in the front and you pass the parlors, it's the staircase that's right there, mm-hmm. which he's been known to appear from time to time. And supposedly Eliza had $2,000 knocked off the price of the house hmm. because of the ghost. <laughs> Interesting. It's haunted. I will not pay you that price. I'd be like, shoot, I'll give you an extra 2000 for this No, house. you can't say things like that. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, any realtors I may work with in the future can ignore what I just said. Yes, yes. Disregard that statement. So the Jumels renovate the house, largely to be accepted by New York society. It never happens. Yeah. Uh, that's, I feel like that was a, a doomed venture from the start. Apparently being accepted by society is a huge important thing. And they really, really wanted that. And they were very good at, in France. They were from, well, Morris, you know, you know, Mr. Jumel was from France and very successful, but they wanted to be accepted into New York society. Like Kate says, they remodeled the house. They redecorated the interior. They threw parties. Didn't take. It's kind of sad. I just yeah. imagine her like all dolled up and waiting for people to show up for the party and nobody comes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a few parties like that when I lived in Washington Heights. It's so far to get to. It is. It's very far. Maybe nobody wanted to go all the way up to him. Could be. They didn't want to get on the subway. Yeah. By all accounts, they did a beautiful job of renovating the home. They did change the initial style of the house, but they did a really good job. You can still see some of the original wallpaper mm-hmm. in the house, which is so beautiful. Hand-painted. It's really amazing. Yeah. Hand- can you imagine? Hand-painted wallpaper. You might as well have a mural. It's amazing. So crazy. Uh, some of the furniture was said to be given to them um, by Napoleon and that it was his wife's. Some of the furniture is said to be his wife's family's relics. They were very big supporters of Napoleon. And of course, yes. you know, Mr. Jumel was a, a Frenchman, uh, very enthusiastic Napoleon supporters. The reality behind that though is that they actually bought that furniture at auction but it makes them sound good that they like are i mean they were close to napoleon sure um but not not that close yeah not not free furniture close (laughs) uh one of the reasons eliza we're gonna go into a little bit of her history now one of the reasons she wanted to be accepted so badly she had a really really tough upbringing definitely uh, whatever story is actually the truth, and there's a couple stories out there, whatever that is, she had it tough, no matter what. Right. She uh, she is born working class. Her father dies when she's very young, and her mom remarries. And for a bit, there's like, yay, things are going to be good, because her mom remarries uh, very wealthy. But mm-hmm. then her mother and her stepfather die. And the will was never changed, so oh. she doesn't get any... She and her sister don't get any money. And so she starts taking work here in New York as an mm-hmm. actress, which at the time was kind of another word for prostitute. It wasn't a respectable profession. Yeah, yeah. She's and just... Also- and even in what Kate is telling you is the real story. I do want to just jump in very quickly with what her official New York Times obituary said which is quite different from 
the real report of her childhood. The obituary says her mother died shortly after giving birth and that, listen to this, she was placed in the care of a good woman and many clergymen visited her comparatively humble dwelling so that the early years of the little one were passed among good influences. When in fact, it's bullshit. It might be more likely, like Kate was saying, well, another report, uh, in fact, Eliza Betsy Bowen was born either in 1773 or 1775, we're still not sure, to a mother who worked as a prostitute for the black for a black madam in Providence, Rhode Island, in a brothel. I've also heard that, that she's an illegitimate child of a prostitute. So there's a lot of stories uh, about her background. I think, Kate, what you were saying is, is the actual one. Sounds a little more ordinary and likely. It's still very sad, but it's not like sensationalized or mm-hmm. she's not the virgin mary so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's somewhere in between either way two. she came to new york city and yes the, definitely worked as an actress and was um hard to say how successful she was with that but she was very beautiful she had considerable wit and worked to gain access to the elite people of the city i'm imagining her kind of being like a like nan like Mm-hmm. Not, not a great actress, but she's really cute, and she's just mm-hmm. kind of doing it till she can land a husband. Or even Evelyn Nesbitt. You show up, you're gorgeous, you get out there, and you try to meet the best person you can. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, no shame. Whatever. Do what you gotta do. Yeah. So it, it worked. She met a wealthy man, and mm-hmm. by some accounts became his mistress and then his wife, and then mm-hmm. by others just became his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he they, he brought her this amazing house for them to live in, like, happily mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for several years. That's it. And and to to go over just a couple more things of what this obituary said of her life. You know, this is before the New York Times did fact-checking, so I just want to be very clear that <laughs> these are just some of the stories that went around. This obituary said she attended the inauguration of George Washington, said she was best friends with Benedict Arnold's wife, says she inspired Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, to fall in love with her. And it also says, this is great, that she was president, that she was present at the first session of the Continental Congress in 1774, which, according to the New York Times, would have made her a, an exceedingly distinguished one-year-old. Yeah, she kind of... It's another one of those, take take a grain of salt with everything you hear. About. We're going to tell you all these great stories. There's so much cool stuff about her, but you need to take this with a big grain of salt because even professional historians are like, I don't know. So she and her husband, Stephen Jumel, were big supporters of Napoleon, and they had spent a lot of time in Paris because they were more accepted in high society there in New York, but they bought the house in 1810, and they lived there with their adopted daughter. That was Mary Bowen. Here's the thing about Mary Bowen. Uh, the internet is silent about her. I could not find a it's single kind of weird, thing. weird, right? I couldn't find anything either. I know. I thought there would have been at least something about her. All they're like is maybe Eliza's illegitimate niece. That's it. Um, so, yes. Uh, after several years of trying to be accepted in high society, they really just left to spend much of their time in France. Yeah, so they leave for France in 1815. Eliza comes back pretty quickly, just two years later, and she pretty much, I mean, they do travel. It's not like she sets down roots. 
she's pretty much New York is her home base from then on. Uh, they do travel because his family is from Bordeaux. Uh, so they travel, you know, to, she'll meet him in Paris and Bordeaux, which sounds like a great life. Yeah. He stays in France. By all accounts, they kind of have a tumultuous relationship. Yeah, they spend a lot of time apart. Yeah. There are some letters that they definitely love each other. They definitely have a very passionate relationship, but they they also, I think she's a very fiery personality, and he probably was too, and they don't always get along, so sometimes it's good to be apart. Uh, he stays in France when she comes back in 1817, however, uh, and they're they're working separately, and she actually saves their fortune because he makes some bad investments while he's abroad in France. Mm -hmm. She's working in the U.S. on their finances here, and her investments here actually save their fortune because he pretty much almost lost everything while he's gone. It. Yes, when they when she came back, she had his power of attorneys. She was able to make financial decisions on behalf of the family. And she, they, it, yeah, he was, he was losing money in France, but they had considerable holdings in the U.S. And she made a lot of very good investments in real estate and increased their holdings to such an extent that she became the richest woman in the United States. She does. And she actually, so there's, there's a lot of traveling. There's time when she's here, time when she's not. They own the house the entire time. Um, while she's abroad, uh, she amasses the, by all accounts, the first great collection of European art in North America. She, she finally returns to New York for good in 1826. She's like, we're not traveling anymore. I can't do this. He comes back in 1828. I think she's basically like, I saved our money. Get your ass back here. And, and in that time, which she had managed to accrue, is 150 acres of Manhattan real estate. Can you even imagine? No. This included a pasture that had 500 merino sheep on what is now the campus of Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where oh, I that's work. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, the Jumel property, this is up in northern Manhattan. There were apple and peach and apricot and plum orchards there was an ice house there was a smoke house there was listen to this a vineyard of white bordeaux wine grapes and that these so grapes idyllic. these exist today really if you go to highbridge park so that's separate from from okay. the house now because you know the land has been sold out and developed and stuff like that highbridge park you can find a fural version of this vineyard of white bordeaux wine grapes isn't that amazing that's amazing i'm gonna go pick some and make some wine i know <laughs> so yes like kate says stephen jumel did return to the united states in 1828 sadly though their domestic bliss does not last too long mm -mm. stephen dies in 1832 and like a lot of things in this story, there are a few different versions. Yeah, it's unclear. One version, he dies of pneumonia. Another version, he died of injuries from a carriage accident. Mm -hmm. Yet another version. A third version. Yeah, you're keeping track. <laughs> uh, if you're keeping track, number three. There's a psychic eventually who comes to the Morris Jumel Mansion to discover 
uh, if it's haunted and who haunts it. Mm-hmm. One of the ghosts is apparently Stephen Jumel. Mm-hmm. And the reason he haunts it is because Eliza buried him alive. Oh, and I have a fourth one. Yes, go. He fell on a pitchfork. They're so wildly different. It's really, really hard. there's not even yeah. There is <laughs> so, okay. Coming. He could have died from any one or perhaps a combination of all of these. My that guess being said, the medium who spoke to him, who learned he was buried alive, is the same medium who had a seance out at the Amityville Horror House. Yeah, and we know and how that went. As always, grains of salt, grains of salt, grains of salt. Right. My guess is that he was in a carriage accident mm-hmm. and he caught pneumonia. And that he died. actually makes a lot of sense. Yes. <laughs> and was buried not alive. But being yes. buried alive was a big uh, a big scare at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a scare is, now. This is like a time when they used to put like, I think this is around the time when they used to put bells mm. so that you could ring the bell if you'd been buried alive. Do you know about mm-hmm. this? Yeah. It's... I, I have heard of such things because there it was possible to not be dead, but to appear dead at a time where it was harder to discern such things. Yes. We didn't know about pulses. Mm-mm. So with his death, she is one of the wealthiest women in New York City. In 1833, a scant 14 months later, she marries Aaron Burr in the front parlor. Very quick after her husband's death, especially for a woman uh, she's in her 60s now, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And this, of course, is controversial ex-president Aaron Burr. Uh, I'm not going to go into a ton of details about Aaron Burr. He's very interesting. I think you should read up on him. But, of course, this is the man who fatally shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He had been vice president of the United States. Yeah, we've talked about him a bit way, mm-hmm. way, way when the podcast first started. Uh, he's Yeah, he's pretty fascinating. He's worth, like... Almost a podcast on his own. I'm not sure we have enough New York City stuff on him. We've got so many A's and so many B's. It's going to be hard to fit him in, but we could do it. So, um, sadly, their marriage uh, is doomed. They only (laughs) last 10 months. It doesn't really take. Yeah. No. I think it's all about the money. Uh, A lot of... of the theory is, uh, you know, Aaron Burr had the prestige and the reputation, but she had the cash, and so right. she wanted... Marriage of convenience. She never gave up on New York society, you know, and he needed cash, so it was a good... It worked out pretty well for them. Yeah, well, it didn't. Except it didn't. So she decides to divorce him. She's like, mm-hmm. no, we're done. Well, she realizes, actually, that her fortune is dwindling. Yet another man not taking care of her money. And that's the main reason they divorce is because Burr is just like making terrible choices with their money, with her money. It's like to say her, their money, but it's her money. It's her money. He's broke and she had the fortune. Yeah. Um, I do love that. So they're married in 1833. You'd imagine by like 1844, it's like over. It takes until 1836 for the divorce to be finalized. And the day it's finalized, he dies. He dies on the day that they're divorced. Can you believe that? So creepy. It's one of the yeah, creepy he things. Had a ser- he had several strokes on that day. I mean, there aren't even theories like she poisoned him for divorcing her. Like, that's not even a thing. He died the same day. And even weirder, well, not even weirder, but almost as weird, 
Do you know who Madame Jamel's divorce attorney was? I, I actually don't know. The son of Alexander Hamilton. No, that's amazing. That's I know, crazy. right? <laughs> I love that we're totally gossiping about... What a woman! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, she... Eliza, you know, she's a single lady. Mm-hmm. I think she's, at this point, she's pretty much given up on... She's done. Oh, she's so society. done. I would be. Come on, think about it. She, um, it, later in life, which I'm imagining is starting to settle in now, mm-hmm. um, has dementia. It is true. She, almost all the reports say she develops dementia. Um, this may or may not be the source of a lot of the uncertainty about her history, a lot of the stories about her. She may have just been saying stories exactly. and people wrote them down but there are there just there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of disagreement about the fact that she did have dementia later in life right um before we get into the dementia uh yet another famous person who stayed in her house was the amazing chef uh by all accounts and northup and her three children in 1842 which if you recognize the last name it's because she's the wife of solomon northup who is the author of 12 Years a Slave? Mm-hmm. This is during the period where he was sold into slavery. Uh, I was like, fl- I was floored by this. I, I was actually kind of excited to, to see that. That's it. And Eliza recognized this woman for her talent, her talent as a chef. And I don't know, uh, in some reports, it almost seems like saw her as a friend, helped out her kids. She just, she she committed her life to helping out these people. And this is not how... Your relationships with your household servants go. This is just not done. No, it's, it's by all accounts, it's pretty amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. They live with her for a couple of years before they move on. Mm-hmm. And this is really the time when everything really goes downhill for mm-hmm. Eliza. That's it. She, she doesn't get visited by her family very often. She's not in great health. Uh, one report says she did not look very good. Nice. Well, I think if you don't have anyone visiting you, you don't have anyone taking care of you, things go downhill fast. She loses teeth. Her hair's a little scraggly. Yeah. She is very eccentric at this point, they say, and her it's a nice way to say she's totally batshit. And and nowadays, she would be able to get help for this, and the signs of dementia would have been seen but she's already an outcast and so people are going to gossip more and more about this woman and honestly to be someone who had to live next door to her all that time and for her fortune to take a turn for the worse what delicious gossip it makes you know yes yeah yeah Yeah. um unfortunately she dies in 1865 Mm -hmm. and lived a long time though was she in her 90s yeah, uh, I read something about how she lived from the beginning of the Revolutionary War all the way to the beginning of the Civil War. Not bad. Not pretty, a bad span of time. Yeah, pretty good span of time. Uh, by 1882, the Jumel heirs have broken up the 115 acres into 1,058 lots. They must it have made took a ton of money. 16 years. Her estate was in was suspended in litigation for 16 years. Well, she there never were... had any children, so. Well, that's the thing, all right? So, okay, she had this enormous property. It was all parceled off. Her fortune was, this was all disputed in lawsuits by a man named George Washington Bowen, who claimed to be her illegitimate son. Right. Back in her Providence days. 
So I don't know. It sounds like someone cashing in on the notoriety and the rumors of a very famous and wealthy woman. But they it took a long time. But yes, eventually it was all worked out. And uh, and uh, is all distributed among her heirs. But Eliza is not gone from our lives, is she, Kate? Apparently not. Mm-hmm. This is, if you're counting, ghost story number three. Number three. Uh, Eliza Jumel sadly died alone in her big mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, towards the end of her life, she's apparently very unsightly, frightening. Uh, and there is a case in 1964 of school children who had come to take a tour of the house. And people have said they've seen it a few times, but this is the famous case. Mm-hmm. Where these children see her on the same, that stairwell, I think, in a violet dress. And she looks, like, scary. Like, Eliza Jumel at the end of her life scary. And she tells the children to shut up. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's certainly great. And I can kind of see Eliza Jumel doing that. There is There is another report that has her saying shush to the children. But yes, basically the message is... Y'all need to stop making so much noise, all right? Well, and I think, I think what she says is that my husband is very ill. You need to be quiet. But oh I, it's goodness. much better to say shut up. Yeah, yeah. Guys, shut up. Yeah. Guys, seriously. And it was this report that earned her her very own episode on Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, I actually don't know about that. I'm going to look around, see if I can find it on YouTube. I don't know how easy it is to find. If it's there, you are definitely seeing that clip down there if you not know, sorry. the ghost episodes on unsolved mysteries used to scare me so bad a lot of unsolved mysteries used to scare me very yeah. very bad well to go back to the house mm-hmm. um general ferdinand earl purchases the mansion and a small plot of land in 1894 mm-hmm. and he actually sells it to the city to preserve the historical significance of the house which the daughters of the american revolution helped the city buy uh, in 1903. Uh, by 1904, the Morse Jumel House is what it is today. It's a museum. It's currently owned by the Departments of Parks and Recreation and was renovated in 1945. I think it needs another one. I'm just saying. Uh, and it looks it looks great. Go there. But, you know, it's a little rough around the edges. It could use, it could use an influx of cash. You know, there's a little out. pot. You could donate a little extra money. You got five bucks, just throw it in. Mm-hmm. Although, this is interesting. A few years ago, the mansion's archivist discovered an original 12-page colonial letter written as a plea for reconciliation to the people of Great Britain. This was written by Robert Livingston, a New York jurist. There is oh, wow. a Livingston Street, not two blocks away from my house right now, after this man. This critical document, which didn't work, there was no reconciliation with the people of Great Britain, but it did influence the Declaration of Independence. It was sold by Kino Auctions for $912,000. That's great. And that was used, and that created an endowment for the property and made tons and tons of repairs that were like long needed. The uh, park around the home, Roger Morris Park, where it sits, is gorgeous now. I cannot overemphasize how much you need to visit this garden. There are 
gardeners tending flower beds and the garden of herbs and vegetables. It is gorgeous. So this is an important and beautiful place. I strongly recommend that you visit. Yeah, really great. I, I actually can't wait to go in the spring springtime. Um, so my last note as a famous visitor to the house, uh, since we were just talking about the Revolutionary War, we had um, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip uh, visited during the bicentennial celebration of the American Revolutionary War. Unbelievable. In 1976. That's what kind of ties it all together. Man, if I were them, I would have stayed out of this country. (laughs) Uh, You know, she's got to see how her former colonies are doing. It's true. See how they're getting on, right? (laughs) One more item, which is the cats of the Morris Dumel house. Right, the cats. Mm -hmm. And and bear with me. I I realize we're doing a, a huge change from the Queen and George Washington and various luminaries to what? Cats? Not just cats, guys. Feral cats. What? Bear with me. Hear me out. So, in 2011, there was an article in the New York Daily News. You can see the link down there. Recommend it. Read it about the cats of the Morris Jumel Mansion. They're not inside the house. If you're allergic, doesn't matter. Go visit. It's fine. I'm allergic. I had a great time at the house. Kate, you're allergic, right? I'm allergic. I didn't see yeah. any. There's no cats Nothing in, in the, the house. house. Now, these are feral cats, and they hang out on the grounds of the house. They don't go inside. Uh, there's a community garden, and this is on 162nd Street, which is part of the grounds of the house, and the cats are welcome there because they keep the rats away. Oh, yeah. That's really smart. Now, at the time of the article's writing, and that was three years ago, there were 11 cats that they were reporting on. These are kind of like well-known cats. They're, they have their own Tumblr site. And if you look down there, you can see the link to it. They even have a name for their gang. They're called the Monte Calvario Colony. They're okay. a colony of cats. And they're named for a church. There's a church right next door. And that allows people to feed the cats in the parking lot there. So this is, it's, I recommend, go read this article. It's really cute. Uh, in the winter, the cats take shelter. There is like this kitty high rise. It looks like a, a little Aww. condo. It's in the back of the garden. Uh, this was actually built by a group called Architects for Animals. And that is uh, an annual competition. And they benefit a group called the New York Feral Cat Initiative. So bear with me. This is a super cool group. You can see a picture of this kitty high-rise condo on the Tumblr site. Many of these cats are, uh, I'm going to call them alumni of the uh, New York City Feral Cat Initiative TNR program. And TNR stands for Trap, Neuter, and Return. So what the, pr- the program is, is it's, they catch the feral alley cats and they neuter them. And then they return them. You know, these kids, these are cats that are not looking for homes. They're probably a little too rough around the edges for, you know, a family or kids. They're fine on the streets, especially if people are feeding them. But let's neuter and fix them, please. Oh, please. And in fact, if you're walking around and you see a feral cat out in the city, you can tell it's been neutered because the vet will do something which is called ear tipping them. Uh, so while the kitty is still under anesthesia from their from their neutering surgery, They'll clip just the triangle tip of one of their ears. So you can even see this on their Tumblr site. A lot of the cats will have just a little little bit of the tip of their ear removed. So the point is that these cats are running around. They're eating their 
kibble and they're keeping the rats away, but they're not making more homeless kittens. And also when you fix or neuter your cat, they're not going to be fighting over mates. They're not screeching all night if they're in heat. They're not spraying urine everywhere. And one more interesting story about these cats, they were even featured on Animal Planet in 2010. There was an episode of a TV show about them, and this TV show resulted in the adoption of two of the cats. Oh, well, yeah. I remember when I was at Pratt, there were a lot of feral cats Definitely. everywhere. They're just called everywhere the Pratt cats. Pratt. Yeah. But yeah. I remember the, the trap neuter release thing. Uh, so happening. they did that there, too? Well, they do it. They did it, especially in Greenpoint. I think there were there was a lot of feral cats around Brooklyn for a while, and they were doing this, uh, which is good. Oh my God, there was some feral cat that lived in the backyard of my last apartment that ah. I swear I would wake up all the time because the thing would just be howling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which so. is obnoxious and really unpleasant for the cat. That cat is physically in pain. I mean, whether they're whatever they're doing, so it is better for the cat to be neutered and then just released don't you know don't try to get them adopted they're fine out on the street especially if people they're are putting happier out that way them. yeah they're some of them some some need a home especially if people sometimes you'll see a cat on the street some of them just dumps their cat there some of them would be fine with rehoming others are just not into that and as long as they can eat that's fine but just neuter them sorry to go off on a tangent but i do want you all to take a look at this Tumblr site because the cats are adorable and they all have names and the people maintaining the Tumblr site and keep an eye out for this particular colony. They've named a bunch of them and uh, it's it's super cute. So check out that link down there. Super cute. Yeah, mm-hmm. so now you can know the stories behind the cats when you go up there. Mm-hmm. I, although I don't remember seeing any cats when we were there, but I'll be honest, I wasn't looking. I, didn't I, wasn't, I don't think I would have paid attention if I saw a cat anyways. I would, I'd be like, oh, kitty, come here, let me pet you. And then I'd have a, a nasty wound that I would run over to Columbia Presbyterian to get fixed. To get fixed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we hope you learned a little bit more about a section of our city that you didn't before today. Mm-hmm. I strongly recommend go up there, pay the five bucks, look at the house, walk around the grounds. The house, I mean, it's gorgeous and, and big, but it's not, like, massive. So this is not something that's going to take all day. No, but I totally was planning, like, how I'd live here and what rooms I would do what with and, you know, the New York real estate totally, thing. Yeah. <laughs> the guest room and my yeah, room. Yeah. I was planning yeah. parties. It was it was pretty good. Uh, yeah, so please support the Morris Jumel House. We are not being paid to tell you to do this, but we hope you do. Definitely. Take a look. It's going to be there a long time, but it's another part of New York City history that it's good to know about. Yeah, and you know, in the winter, you get totally sick of being inside the house all the time. Mm-hmm. This is a, especially if you live up there. We know we have some fans that are living Upper Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Go, it's it's totally worth it. Yes, definitely take a visit. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Kathleen, and uh, I look forward to the next letter. Yes. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you for episode N, which is going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Be here with me on this night in New York City. I wish you For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. You were standing here as Broadway opens up her arms.
the crimson skyline bruises black and lights up like a favorite song. I wish you could be here with me on this night in New York City. I wish you could be here with me on this night in New York City.